this morning, we're going to be reading through all of Psalm 78. It's a long psalm, but it's a good psalm. And it was hard to know. We couldn't really leave anything out. So we're going to be reading it in sections through the service. But I thought I might just do a little bit of an introduction before we begin to read it. How many people here have gone to some kind of family gathering or family reunion this summer? In Canada, it's a popular thing to do if you have extended family and you're perhaps visiting them. And one of the things we find when we meet with extended family is that people start to tell stories. And remember back when, when Uncle Charlie did such and such or whatever. Every family has their stories. They may be good stories or difficult stories, but every family has their story. Uh, Today actually is my dad's birthday. He died a few years ago. So to remember my dad, our extended family started a new tradition that everybody, wherever they live in Canada or the world, goes and eats ice cream in memory of my dad, which is a pretty good tradition. So I kind of stoked about that. Um, But that's one of the ways we kind of remember my dad. As we go through this psalm, we're going to be seeing a lot of highs and lows when we look at the family of God. There's a lot of challenges, some good things, a lot of bad things. So what I'd like you to do, especially if you're going to be here through the service, mentally track or sort of check off in your mind, is this a high or is this a low? Where are things going in the story, in the narrative? Or is this a high point or a low point? And we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of the service. But for now, we're going to start uh, reading Psalm 78, the first eight verses. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past. Stories we have heard and known. Stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children. So the next generation might know them. Even the children not yet born. And they, in turn, will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. As we continue in our reading of Psalm 78... Uh, from chapter 9. The warriors of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned their backs and fled on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his instructions. They forgot what he had done, the great wonders he had shown them, the miracles he did for their ancestors on the plain of Zon and in the land of Egypt. For he divided the sea and led them through, making the water stand up like walls. In the daytime, he led them by a cloud, and all night by a pillar of fire. He split open the rocks in the wilderness to give them water, as from a gushing spring. He made streams pour from the rock, making the waters flow down like a river. Yet they kept on sinning against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert." 
They stubbornly tested God in their hearts, demanding the foods they craved. They even spoke against God himself, saying, God can't give us food in the wilderness. Yes, he can strike a rock so water gushes out, but he can't give his people bread and meat. When the Lord heard them, he was furious. The fire of his wrath burned against Jacob. Yes, his anger rose against Israel, for they did not believe God or trust him to care for them. But he commanded the skies to open. He opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna for them to eat. He gave them bread from heaven. They ate the food of angels. God gave them all they could hold. He released the east wind in the heavens and guided the south wind by his mighty power. He rained down meat as thick as dust, birds as plentiful as the sand on the seashore. He caused the birds to fall within their camp and all around their tents. The people ate their fill. He gave them what they craved. But before they satisfied their craving, while the meat was yet in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed their strongest men. He struck down the finest of Israel's young men. But in spite of this, the people kept sinning. Despite his wonders, they refused to trust him. So he ended their lives in failure, their years in terror. We're going to continue in our reading of Psalm 78, uh, starting at, at verse 34, and we're going to do this as a responsive reading, um, so I believe it's noted on the screen uh, when to follow. When God began killing them, they finally sought him. They repented and took God seriously. <coughs> then they remembered that God was their rock, the God most high was their redeemer. But all they gave him was lip service. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They did not keep his covenant. Yet he was merciful and forgave their sins and did not destroy them all. Many times he held back his anger and did not unleash his fury. For he remembered that they were merely mortal, gone like a breath of wind that never returns. Oh, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved his heart in that dry wasteland. Again and again, they tested God's patience and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power and how he rescued them from their enemies. They did not remember his miraculous signs in Egypt, his wonders on the plain as of own. For he turned their rivers into blood so no one could drink from the streams. He sent vast swarms of flies to consume them and hordes of frogs to ruin them. He gave their crops to caterpillars. Their harvest was consumed by locusts. He destroyed their grapevines with hail and shattered their sycamore figs with sleet. He abandoned their cattle to the hail, their livestock to the bolts of lightning. He loosed on them his fierce anger, all his fury, rage, and hostility. He dispatched against them a band of destroying angels. He turned his anger against them. He did not spare the Egyptians' lives, but ravaged them with the plague. He killed the oldest son in each Egyptian family, the flower of youth throughout the land of Egypt. But he led his own people like a flock of sheep, guiding them safely through the wilderness. He kept them safe so they were not afraid but the sea covered their enemies. 
Continuing with Psalm 78, we're now at verse 54. He brought them to the border of his holy land, to the land of hills he had won for them. He drove out the nations before them. He gave them their inheritance by lot. He settled the tribes of Israel into their homes. But they kept testing and rebelling against God Most High. They did not obey his laws. They turned back and were as faithless as their parents. They were undependable, as crooked as a bow, as a crooked bow. They angered God by building shrines to other gods. They made him jealous with their idols. When God heard them, he was very angry, and he completely rejected Israel. Then he abandoned his dwelling at Shiloh, the tabernacle where he had lived among the people. He allowed the ark of his might to be captured. He surrendered his glory into enemy hands. He gave his people over to be butchered by the sword, because he was so angry with his own people, his special possession. Their young men were killed by fire. Their young women died before singing their wedding songs. Their priests were slaughtered, and their widows could not mourn their deaths. Then the Lord rose up as though waking from sleep, like a warrior aroused from a drunken stupor. He routed his enemies and sent them to eternal shame. But he rejected Joseph's descendants. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. He chose instead the tribe of Judah and Mount Zion, which he loved. There he built his sanctuary as high as the heavens, as solid and enduring as the earth. He chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens. He took David from tending the ewes and lambs and made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people, Israel. He cared for them with a true heart and led them with skillful hands. It has been said that if we learn anything from history, it is that we learn nothing from history. Let's think about that again for a minute. If we learn anything from history, it is that we learn nothing from history. Let me put that another way. It's a very famous uh, quote from uh, Abraham Lincoln. Experience keeps a dear school, but fools will learn in no other and scarce in that. Let me put that into modern-day English for you. Experience is the best education, but if you can learn from other people's mistakes, the tuition is cheaper. (laughs) A whole lot cheaper. I'm really tempted right now to do a poll, but I don't want to embarrass you by holding up your hands. We'll keep it rhetorical for now. How many people here have learned from their own mistakes? How many people have learned from the mistakes of others? Congratulations. How many are still, you know, I won't ask you how many times you repeat the mistakes, but eventually if we learn them, that's good. Congratulations on making it through Psalm 78. If you charted this psalm, how would you, you, how would you chart it? There were a lot of dips. It seemed to be a lot more valleys than hills, didn't there? There were a lot of... It was... I have to tell you, um, I got kind of depressed preparing this sermon because I thought, what a grim, sad story. Uh, and, and it is true that experience is the best education, but if you can learn from other people's mistakes, the tuition is a lot cheaper. I have to tell you that I'm very tempted to get awfully judgmental of these people in Psalm 78 because I read this and think, oh, what a bunch of 
losers, doughheads. You know, how could they repeat mistake after mistake after mistake? And then I look in the mirror and go, I'm one of them. Just like the disciples following Jesus, right? We think they had the inside track. Man, well, if I could spend three years with Jesus in kind of a private tutorial, I'd show them a thing or two. Yeah, you would, and so would I. You would probably turn out exactly just like them. They didn't always get it. They didn't usually get it, did they? But there is hope at the end of the psalm, so stick with me. We're going to go through, uh, quickly skim through uh, Psalm 78. But before we do, we're going to talk about the Olympics, a winter sport in July. Sport of biathlon is tremendously challenging. Because it doesn't just test your cardio, it really tests your cardiovascular uh, capacity. Because you cross-country ski like crazy for several kilometers, then you've got to be absolutely in a still position. And and either from prone or standing, you have to be able to hit five targets in a row. And then you go back skiing. Now you think, ah, well, you know, ski, 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 shoot, 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 ski, 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 shoot, shoot, shoot. What's so hard about that? The problem is, when you're standing, now if it would be, I'd be going, (gasps) and every spectator would be at risk, naturally, right? Because bullets would be flying everywhere. And I have to confess, the only time I watch the Olympics, I watch it regularly every four years the uh, Winter Olympics and the biathlon. Because I'm thinking, you get kind of caught up in it and think you're waiting for those, ooh, can they hit all the targets? What happens if a biathlete misses a target? Do you know where they go? The penalty loop. Now, here's a biathlon course. And you, you skate around the east skate, ski around the outside track, and there's a shooting range there. But see that little blip in the middle, that little circle? That is the penalty loop. So, and it's 200 meters long, so for every, you have to do five consecutive targets. And for every target you miss, you have to ski an extra 200 meters. So if you miss two targets, you ski 400 meters, right? And so on and so on. You get the idea. So, the pressure's on. You don't want to miss. But, sometimes you do. So you do the penalty loop. Here's my point. In life, too many of us spend time that we really don't need on the penalty loop, cycling again and again and again. It may be us as individuals, and maybe if you're in a relationship or especially in a marriage relationship, couples just find this way of cycling around. Maybe you're trying to get out of a a destructive habit or an addiction or just, I don't know, just life uh, can seem, it, it cycles back and we get caught kind of in the undertow and we go, oh, here we go again, the penalty loop. When do I get back on the race of life and really get back on track? Well, that's kind of what was happening in Psalm 68, 78, sorry. But uh, just before we get into that, the, the, the author, Asaph, remember we talked about him a few weeks ago. He was a worship leader in, in David's time. He starts off the first eight verses of this psalm, and he says just a few things about 
the purpose of this song because we want to pass on values, the important truths about God. First of all, he says, we must teach our children diligently. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. That's why we have, she's not here. Our family pastor rocks. To be honest, I got to tell you, okay, Justina's not here. She's the best thing that Elam's got going for it. I honestly believe that with all my heart. Okay. A lot of other positive things. So don't feel denigrated, okay? But Pastor Justina, from what I've seen, is the glue that holds Elam together. So pray for Justina and Jeff and their family. Pray that God will bless them and protect them because it's so important that we tell the next generation what God is like. We must teach our children to put their trust in God. Um, that's what we teach them, that God is faithful, that he can be trusted. And we model that, not just with our words, but with our actions. This is a responsibility of every person here over the age of 18 at Elam Chapel. Whether you have biological children or not, whether you have biological grandchildren or not, we all get the opportunity to parent the children in our care as a church family and in our extended community. The next generation needs to know, needs to soak into their very spirit that God, our creator, can be trusted. He is a loving father. Many of us did not grow up with a healthy relationship with our father or maybe we didn't even grow up with a healthy father. But nonetheless... Our creator God is the ultimate example of a loving father. And we need to model and introduce and make it as easy and natural as possible for the children in our midst to want to follow him. Okay? We do that more often through our actions as well as our words, but especially our actions. We must teach our children not to rebel against God. So the reason why we teach our children about God's mighty acts and who God really is and that they can trust Him is so that they won't be like our ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. I normally like Father's Day, but this past Father's Day, God really did a number on me, and I I wrote a letter uh, on that, the, the afternoon of that day to our three children, uh, apologizing to them and confessing some mistakes that I had ma- made as a father. Now, I alarmed our one son, Caleb, a little bit too much. He lives in Toronto, and I just sent an email. And because our kids are never on emails, they, they text, right? And in fact, you don't phone our children. You text them to see if you can phone them. That's just, I don't know, it's just... Now... Many of you were saying, well, of course, you know, and the other half of you are going, what? what's a text? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but poor Caleb, I alarmed him by saying, you've got to read this thing. And he's going, oh, what's going on? I said, well, I just wanted to share my heart with you. And he says, oh, is that all? You gave me a major panic attack. But anyway, we had a good conversation out of that. 
And I said, basically, you know, go and make your own mistakes. Make new mistakes. Please don't repeat the mistakes that I have made because I feel like I've passed on some bad stuff to you as a dad. So we must teach our children to trust God and also not to rebel against God, which is so utterly foolish. Wouldn't it be stupid, just downright dumb, to climb to the top of the, the, the tower here and say, I'm going to fly. We, some people would be tugging on your ankle saying, you might want to reconsider your choices there. Right? What would happen? 911. Okay. But you, you break, we break ourselves. When we break God's law, we break ourselves against God's law. You jump off the tower here, you would break yourself against the law of gravity. Okay? Law of gravity would just keep on being the law of gravity, you know? But when we break God's laws, we really break ourselves. It's not like it hurts God as a dad. He says he's laid out boundaries for us in life and he doesn't want to see us in pain, but we really do ourselves more harm. So that's why it's really important that we teach our children that you can trust God and it's really foolish to rebel against him. Well, here's a sad story. The beginning, the sad story of the people of Israel as we started in Psalm 78. Failure to remember. One of the biggest problems we run ourselves into, get ourselves into, is that we forget. They forgot what God had done. Amazing wonders he had shown them. All the miracles they had done for their ancestors. And, and listed into all, we read already all the detail of how God delivered the Israelites. But when we forget, when we have a bad memory, we lose perspective, right? And we get off track. And we start missing the targets. And we go back to that loop. Persistent rebellion. Then they, they kept on sinning against God, rebelling against Him. They stubbornly tested God in their hearts, demanding the foods that they craved. Uh, we didn't go into all the detail here, but you know what they were craving? It, it, it says this in the book of Exodus. Oh, I, I really miss all the onions and leeks and garlic that we had back in Egypt. All I could think of was halitosis. You know, think of the bad breath these people had in Egypt. I don't think I'd be missing that at all. I like garlic as much as the next guy, but this is what they were pining for. Oh, God can't look after us. He's brought us in the desert to starve. Let's kill Moses and go home. Wine, wine, wine. They forgot what God had done. They even spoke against God himself, saying, God can't give us food in the wilderness. Well, of course he does. He supplies manna. Amazing provision. But after a while, they get kind of tired of that too and start whining again. Oh, I wish we had some meat. Really craving protein. Now I can... You can get into some good protein from time to time. But, I mean, you see this lack of gratitude that these people have? It was just horrendous. And when God heard them, he was furious. The fire of his wrath burned against Jacob. Yes, his anger rose against Israel, for they did not believe God or trust him to care for them. After all they had been through, after all the miracles God had worked in their lives, eh, God... You know, God helps those who help themselves. That's what they were saying, basically. We're on our own here. But 
God's grace always comes through. Even though he's frustrated and angry and he's got a, his righteous, God's anger is always justified. You and I, when we get angry, most of the time, if we're honest, it's not really justified. Well, if you knew the whole story, you would take my side. Maybe not. But, you know, God's anger is always justified because he's holy and he's a jealous God. Does that mean he's insecure? No, it just means he's, he's passionate about us. He made us. He knows what we need. He's provided everything for us. And for us to be ungrateful and grumbling, I have a hard time listening to people complain, especially about living in Canada. I'm so tempted to say, why don't you find another place to live? You know, seriously. If you don't like it, find another place on the bus. Because I don't have time for that. That doesn't mean we, we, there's no place for constructive criticism in life. I just get tired of people who complain and are negative all the time. But here's God's grace. In spite of all this complaining and rebellion and ingratitude, he commands the skies to open. He supplies for them. God gave them all they could hold. But in spite of this, back to the penalty loop, People kept on sinning. Despite his wonders, they refused to trust him. So he ended their lives in failure, their years in terror. What a horrible epitaph for a generation of God's people. He ended their lives in failure, their years in terror. I don't know how old you are, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm wondering if anybody's been writing their epitaph yet. What would you like to be remembered for? How would you like to be remembered? They ended their lives in failure, their years in terror, because they didn't trust God and they kept rebelling. Man, that's really sad. You can see why I got depressed preparing this sermon. Sometimes, though, when things get bad enough, we turn back to God. We tend to turn to God in times of crisis, right? When God began killing them, they finally sought him. They repented and took God seriously. Oh, good, now things are on the upswing. But all they gave him was lip service. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to them. They did not keep his covenant. Oh, man. Back in the penalty loop. I think we missed all five targets this time. I even bother carrying a rifle in the course because these people can't shoot straight. How discouraging. But it's true. We tend to turn, in God, turn to God in crisis, don't we? Do you remember what you did the Sunday after 9-11? I remember what our family did. We were new to Winnipeg and didn't really have a home church. So we went to one church downtown. And no word of a lie, I've never sat on the floor of a church for a service before. It was so packed and so full of people trying to figure out what's going on and, and, and grasping for truth in the crisis. The only place to sit down was right at the front. And we sat on the floor through that service with our kids and I think, what the dickens is going on in the world that all this, this tragedy has happened? So in times of crisis, we'll turn to God. But 
Did church attendance stay up after 9-11? No, it kind of trickled away. Life went back to normal. President Bush said, do your patriotic duty and go shopping and stimulate the economy. And life kind of, sort of, a little bit went back to normal. Unless you're flying on an airplane these days. But it didn't really bring about lasting spiritual change in North America, did it? Why is God so patient with us? I, I know, technically I know, but on an emotional level, I really struggle with this. I don't know why God is so patient. Yet he was merciful and forgave their sins and did not destroy them all. Many times he held back his anger and did not unleash his fury. I was intrigued with this last verse. How many times has God almost like, oh, and it's not like he's got a temper. God doesn't have uncontrollable anger. He's he's controlled himself. But God has a passion for us, a, a loving father that loves his children and wants the best for them. And yet when he sees them, rebellious and and with an ungrateful attitude. It's like, ah, we don't understand the passion of God for us. Like if you're married or in a serious relationship and the person that you love most starts wandering away from you, how do you feel? Jealous, hurt, you do anything to want to get them back. That's how God feels, like a wounded lover. You don't believe me? Read some of the prophets in the Old Testament. That's passion. That's how God feels about us. But many times he held back his anger and did not unleash his fury. Isn't it ironic that whenever we run into a hard time in our life or a crisis, we all say, well, where was God when that happened? Where was God when that bad thing happened? We understand that, you know, it doesn't, life isn't always easier or easy to figure out. But we tend to blame him when things are bad and ignore him when things are good. That's exactly what was going on in Psalm 78. Unfortunately, these people didn't learn from their mistakes. They repeated the mistakes of the past. They kept testing and rebelling against God most high. They did not obey his laws. They turned back and were as faithless as their parents. It wasn't bad enough that the previous generation was unfaithful to God. Their children and grandchildren didn't really learn anything. Now listen, they were as undependable as a crooked bow. They angered God by building shrines to other gods and made him jealous with their idols. They were as undependable as a crooked bow. Do you know the first thing I thought of when I thought of this because I'm kind of a sports fan? In the NHL, there's a trend in hockey to use these new fancy, newfangled hockey sticks, composite, like sort of graphite hockey sticks. You can shoot a lot harder and a lot faster with these new sticks. But there's a problem with it. Sometimes they tend to break at the most inopportune moments. So you're winding up to take a shot, and all of a sudden you've got two two or three pieces of stick, and you can't play with a broken stick. You've got to drop it and go to the bench or whatever. You look really stupid. There's a famous video I was tempted to show it to you, the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Matt Sundin, a few years ago, winding up to take a shot, and all of a sudden he's left with this stick. And do you know what he did? He threw it into the crowd, which wasn't a good idea because he got a penalty for it, and he could have really hurt somebody. But out of frustration, he just said, ah, stupid, undependable stick. So these people 
Whereas undependable is that hockey stick that could break just at any given time. Or as undependable as a crooked bow. Now, you can't shoot straight with a crooked bow, right? Imagine someone in the biathlon trying to shoot at a target, but the sights aren't straight. That would be kind of frustrating. You keep shooting and shooting and shooting, and you get the same results. That's the definition of insanity. You want to try to do something different, and you keep doing the same thing, and you keep getting the same results. Around in the penalty loop, right? That's the problem with these people. They were as undependable as a crooked bow. And when we forget God, eventually, He rejects us and our worship. So he gave his people over to be butchered by the sword because he was so angry with his own people. His special possession. He gave them over. He basically said, okay, if you guys want to live without me, those are the consequences. I hate to see you live, experience the consequences of life without me, but you've made that choice. So be it. There is some good news at the end of the psalm, though. Some hope comes on the horizon. And God provides deliverance, providing the right leadership for the nation. And there's a, there's a revival going on. He chose a servant, David, calling him from the sheep pens. He took David from tending the ewes and the lambs and made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people, Israel. I want to tell you just a little bit a story of how David got chosen to be king. There's a guy named Samuel, a prophet, the time. And God said, um, okay, we need a new king. The king we've got, Saul, is not a godly man, and we're going to choose a new one. And I want you to go to uh, the little town of Bethlehem. It's a familiar name. Um, and uh, there's a guy named Jesse who's got a lot of boys there, and I want you to go, and that's, that's the family you're going to choose from. So, fine. Uh, Samuel's obedient, and he goes, and he tells this fellow, Jesse, okay, <clears throat> show me all your boys. Lines them all up, starts kind of in order of the age, and goes to the oldest one, and God says, nope, not him. And everyone's kind of expecting that something significant is going to happen, you know, saying they're all kind of, mm, is it me, is it me? And he goes through all the boys one by one, and he looks at, then Samuel looks at Jesse, he says, that all you got? Are these all your boys? Well, yeah, there's David. He's kind of the runt of the litter. He's the kid, little brother. He's, out, he's just out looking after the sheep. That's all he's good for. Well, come on. Bring him out. So they run and get David. And immediately when David shows up, God says to Samuel, that's the one. Throughout biblical history, God is always selecting unlikely people are the people that we would consider unlikely to do his will, to be his leaders. It happens time and time again. Do you know why? Because God gets to show his power through unlikely people. I love that. I love that about God. Because he says, it says this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, I hope you don't feel terribly offended. I'm just quoting the Bible to you. But Paul said, now, now remember, brothers and sisters, when God called you into his family, not many of you were noble or impressive or had a brilliant resume or anything like that. But God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak to confound the strong, the foolish to confound the wise. 
I think of our location here, and right across the street is a center of higher learning. And I'm all for education and using your brain and expanding it and studying. That's great. But so much of the wisdom across the street at the University of Winnipeg would be contrary to God's values and God's laws. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. I'm just being matter-of-fact. But God has chosen the foolish things, the weak things of this world, to confound the strong and seemingly strong and wise things. So God shows his deliverance to his people by choosing this shepherd boy, David. And he fills him with his spirit and gives him the ability to lead well. David cared for them with a true heart and led them with skillful hands. So God provided deliverance out of the penalty loop through David, through his intervention. I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know if you can relate to this penalty loop again. I don't know if you feel like you're cycling over and over again. Maybe you're doing it on your own. Maybe your family's doing it. Maybe your marriage is doing it. I don't know. God would love to set you free from this penalty loop of your own making. But what we have to do is repent. Repent of our stubbornness. Repent of our independence. Repent of our unbelief. And come to Jesus and saying, I'm sorry I'm not trusting you. I need to get in a right relationship with you. I need to follow you. I need, and I need to follow you with a true heart, not just lip service, but with a true heart. We repent sometimes, or we say we're sorry because we're actually sorry for getting caught. We're sorry for feeling guilty instead of genuinely convicted in our spirit saying, I need to do a 180 in life. That's just human nature. But we need to own our sin. We need to take responsibility for it and come clean with God. And when we do, he promises to change us. I'm not going to prolong this message. I want to close now and pray. But I'm going to invite you to make, to, to get things straight with God. If you want to get out of the penalty loop, and if you want to talk to me or talk to someone else this week about this, then please do that. But this is your opportunity to try to get out of any negative cycle or negative spiral that you're in, okay? God has the power to do this. I don't. You don't. But God does. So let's seek him, all right? Father, we realize that we can cycle our way through life and spin our wheels. I pray that you would, um, that if there is anyone here that is struggling and trapped in some kind of negative cycle in life, that you would help them to break free. I pray that you would set them free and that you would give them the courage to trust you and to follow you with their whole heart. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on Canada. We cycle so much. We tend to repeat history. And 
commit even greater sins than our parents and grandparents did. Have mercy on us. I know you said your, your loving kindness is new every morning. We could use some of that tomorrow when we wake up. I pray that you work in every seeking heart here today. And Father, for the hardened hearts that are here today, the people that are ignoring this message, I pray that you would speak to them as well. I pray that you would clearly communicate your truth to every person here today. We pray these things confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen.